the different religions of the world are like different blind men, says the Buddhist parable. Each touching an elephant and describing what he feels, it's like a snake, says the one touching the trunk. Like a spear, says the one touching the tusks. Like the like a, a tree, says the one touching the leg. Like a wall, says the one touching the side. Different religions are like different paths up the same mountain, says the Hindu wisdom. All religions are one, says the English poet William Blake. Different strokes for different folks, says somebody. If you've been here, if you're here this morning and you're a guest, you may have even heard different Christians offer some version or other of this same kind of pluralistic wisdom. The idea that one way or another, we're all finding our way to God, and there's different legitimate ways. But Christianity, as it's been revealed in the Bible, doesn't teach that. It offers us something very, very clearer. Christianity in the Bible teaches that there are two ways to live and two ways to love. The way of the serpent or the way of the son, according to the book of Genesis. The way of folly or the way of wisdom, says the book of Proverbs. The, the way of earning your way and climbing up that mountain to God or the way of recognizing that God himself comes to save, says the book of Romans. And last week, if you were here, as we are marching little by little through the book of 1 John, we'll see, we saw that John divides all of humanity again into two separate groups, the children of the devil. If you look at verse 10 of chapter 3, the children of the devil or the children of God. All humanity are in these two non-overlapping circles. And this week, as we continue, as I said through 1 John, we're going to see what these two ways of living are like. What, what is the way of living for children of the devil? What is the way of living for the children of God? And it's going to group it around the way of Cain and the way of Abel. John's purpose is to help members of the church understand why some had left them. And his purpose is to help us not be deceived. That even as though some call themselves Christians, if they are living in the way of folly, in the way of earning our way to God, in the way of Cain, it is not true Christianity. In that sense, friends, 1 John is a book about basic Christianity. What does Christianity look like? If, I, if I've turned away from my sin and put my trust in Christ to follow after him, what does my life look like now? Well, for starters, it starts by saying not what does my life look like. Kessid, should I just go to this? Is it breaking up a lot? Feels like I feel like I hear a little. All right. Not just what does my look, life look like, but what does our life look like? 
Look at verse 11 of 1 John chapter 3. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Basic Christianity looks like a we. Not just a me, but a we. And what do we do? We love one another. That's where this all begins. And then the rest of today's passage, verses 12 to 24, then help us to see what loving one another looks like. Let me begin by reading through today's passage. 1 John 3, verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Sorry. Messed up screen. By this, verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our hearts, heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive for him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abide in God and God in him. By this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. If you turn to page 9 in your <clears throat> bulletin, you'll see that I've drawn out nine different contrasts for characterizing these two ways to live and to love, according to the Apostle John. Number one, you can live like Cain, the evil one, or... Like Abel, not of the evil one. Verse 12 again, we should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and who murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteousness. And again, I said this is how we conclude week. We have two groups of people, children of the devil and children of God, which John now describes as two different ways of living like Cain of the evil one, or like his brother Abel, not of the evil one. And friends, what we do when we gather as a church again and again, we work to recognize that this is the most significant divide in all of history. Now, throughout our weeks, we look at other things that divide humanity, and we make a really big deal of them. The divide between, are you American or are you not American? Russian, Ukrainian, 
the divide between men and women, the divide between Republicans and Democrats, the divide between this skin color and that skin color, this tribe and that tribe. Now, these different divisions are real. They have different meanings. We need to respond to them, one this way, one that way. But through all of that, what we see throughout Scripture and what our passage this morning tells us is that the most important, significant, ultimate divide is between not the people of God and the people of God. The way of Cain, the way of Abel. That has a lot of practical implications in our lives. Super concretely, that means, for instance, I personally would never recommend that we put an American flag when we gather. This isn't fundamentally a gathering of Americans. It's a fundamentally a gathering of Christians. This means very practically we need to both affirm our shared unity in Christ, even as we work to understand one another's different ethnic backgrounds and be careful not to confuse any of our own ethnic backgrounds with Christianity itself and working to understand people coming from different ethnic backgrounds and their life and their history and their experience, even as we work and build together towards oneness in Christ. What this means, very practically, friends, is that we must never, ever confuse Christianity with one political party. And I say that recognizing there are exceptional times when we can say Christians should not be a part of that party, even as the Confessing Church in Germany did in 1934. Christians cannot be Nazis. There are times when we can say that, but even then, you do not confuse Christianity with another party because the division between the people of God and not the people of God is the ultimate division. That means as I'm, as I'm looking out at the world and I'm deciding what to say or not to say, what I'm putting my emotions in and my loyalties to, everything operates through the grid of will what I'm about to say or not say, tweet or not tweet, Facebook or not Facebook, do or not do in this workplace, will that help represent Christ well? Will what I want to say or not say, do or not do, help the other person know what Christ is like? That is going to garner the, the, the main lens through which I see everything. And, 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 and the most of my attention and devotion. Think about even Jesus himself saying, where are my mother and brother and sisters? And then answered that question by indicating his membership, as it were, his loyalty to the people of God transcended even flesh and blood. This is the most important division in all of humanity. Who belongs to God and who does 
not. Listen to this. We don't even most fundamentally belong to being Baptists. And I have devoted hundreds of pages to arguing for being a Baptist. Nonetheless, the fellowship that I share with my Anglican, Lutheran, Presbyterian brother in Christ is closer, more important than any Baptist folk who do not share that same gospel. Different kinds of divisions. We have to respond to them differently. Nonetheless, the most important divide in all of history is between the children of the devil who who walk in the way of Cain and, and, and the people of God who walk by faith in the way of Abel. First contrast. Second contrast. Number two, commits evil deeds versus commits righteous deeds. Pretty straightforward, right? Verse 12 again. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. The way of Cain is characterized by evil deeds, the way of Abel by righteous deeds. For any kids in the room, if you're thinking about being a Christian, Christianity means committing yourself to the way of righteousness. Walking according to God's view of right. Walking according to God's law. It means fighting against Now, when we sin, God forgives us, that's true, but we get up and we off the ground and keep walking in obedience, striving to do that and committing ourselves to it. Number three, loved by God, sure. Move this my front pocket. Okay, we'll try that. Number three, loved by God versus hated by the world. Verses, second half of verse 12 and the beginning of 13. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Uh, Notice, in other words, that Cain didn't just hate Abel because he his deeds were evil, but also because his brothers were righteous. Not what the verse says. Cain was jealous of Abel. He despised Abel's righteousness. And verse 13 offers the takeaway lesson. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. I I wonder if you've ever found yourself frustrated with annoyed, disdaining somebody else because their deeds were righteous, because they were godly, because they were mature in Christ. And and I'm calling that jealousy ironically, that anger jealousy ironically, because even as you love your own sin, Cain loving his sin, There's something in him that recognizes, in us, that recognizes that that way of righteousness is what we were intended for too. Our consciences bear witness, I should be doing that as well. That righteousness is right. And I hate him. I'm jealous of him. Because he is doing something, he is getting something that I I know I should be as well. 
So we're jealous of his or her righteousness, and now we're a little bit angry about that. That's what we see in this text with Cain towards Abel, right? In other words, friends, it's not just Jesus that the world hates. It's Jesus' law. And Jesus saying, this is the way of righteousness that the world hates. Such that if you take your Christianity and you kind of reform it, reshape it in a way that accords with the world's way of living, the world's laws, the world's value systems, the world's celebration, they won't hate you. They'll say, oh, that's cool. I like that. Yeah, you got Jesus and you're like us too. It's not just Jesus, but the way of Jesus, the way of Abel that the world despises. Uh, Yesterday, a friend of mine was sitting in a circle with a group of people, and the leader of that group said, let's all go around and share our preferred pronouns. And at that moment, she knew she could answer that question in a way that either provoked anger in the group or dissipated anger from that group. Now, let's leave aside the the question for a moment even and the wisdom of how does a Christian answer in a circumstance like that. I, I just want to explore for a second what's going on there. What's going on there is the leader of that group is saying, all of you, let's make sure all of you conform your morality, your moral systems, your God to my own. And if you don't, there is a threat, a threat of moral exclusion from this circle, even an implicit threat of anger. We're going to oppose you if you do not offer your preferred pronoun right now. Friends, there are two ways to live and two ways to love. And don't be surprised if the world hates you for taking the way of Abel and not the way of Cain. It's been predicted 2,000 years ago, and it's as relevant and real today as ever. If there are two ways to live in love, including being hated or being loved by the world, the flip side of the coin is loving or hating other Christians. Look at four. Hating Christians versus loving Christians. Verses uh, 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. Love of other Christians, in other words, says John, is an extremely important dashboard gauge for showing what we are. Does the needle of your heart bend towards loving other Christians, or does it bend away from loving other Christians? That's that's part of how we know what or who we are. Are. Now, it's comparatively easy, I'll, I'll say, for me to love you guys. You're kind to me, you're, you're encouraging to me. But when, whenever hard stuff comes up in your life, you mostly go to John, not me, so I don't have to deal with that stuff. Just kidding. He's never said that. 
you're all easy people to love. Where I find difficulty and challenges loving other Christians is often people outside of this room. People I encounter somehow out there. That's where I know I have difficulty loving other Christians. I want to get mad at them. I want to I I judge them in, in one way or another. What, what's a quick takeaway lesson from that? Knowing people is often helping, helpful to loving people. Not always, but especially for a born-again heart. If you find that you're struggling with loving somebody in this church, do the hard thing. Ask them out or ask them over. Get to know their story. I, I find one of the main things I try to do with other Christians, I was having lunch with somebody on uh, Friday, somebody who kind of represents a different branch uh, of, of Christianity, and we have different, strongly different views on, on a number of things. And so the way I wanted to begin that lunch was just by asking the man's testimony. How did you come to know Christ? And in hearing him share how he became a Christian, I found my heart strangely kind of growing in affection for this man and, and recognizing that we share the most things in common. And then with that established, that bridge established, now we're in a better position to talk about the things that we disagree on. So friends, if, if you're struggling to love somebody in this church or another Christian, either because of differences or may, maybe because in some ways they've, they've sinned against you, my advice is get to know them. It's on them, but it's also on you. That is your work to do. After all, think about what God in Christ says to us when we don't love a brother or sister or even despise a brother or sister. He says to us, I died for them. The love of the Father for me has been placed on them. Would you not love the one whom I died for and whom the Father has placed his love on? Don't you love me? Or let me put it like this. If you despise one of my daughters, you and I are going to have a tough relationship. I'll tell you that right now. If you would love me, you would love my daughters. Does God not say the same to us? He does. How will we be children of God by loving one another? Number five abides in life versus abides in death. Look at verse 14 again. Whoever does not love abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Uh, notice that these verses don't say you have eternal life. They refer to abiding in eternal life. Why does John put it that way? Well, his, his emphasis is not so much uh, on extending or the extent of our present life eternally over time, though that's implicit. Rather, his emphasis is on living now according to the life of the Son, according to the principles and vitality and love of the Son now and living in that now. This is crazy if you think about it. Life, as God intended it, meaning waking up conscious Breathing, life, being alive as intended by God in creation is all for love. Giving love, receiving 
love, knowing, living inside of, existing in, unceasing, perfect, never-ending love. Even as the Father loved the Son, the Father and Son loved the Spirit, the Spirit loved the Father and the Son, the Son loved Father and Spirit in this eternal world of love. That is what life is for. That was life in the garden. That will be one day life in eternity. And we'll think more about this in depth when we get to chapter 4 and that wonderful, glorious phrase, God is love, right? So to abide in Christ is to abide now this world of love. And so loving one another even as we have loved. Therefore, if we don't love, if we ignore, we disdain, we despise, we even hate, we are now abiding in a world of death. Not life, death. Anti-God, anti-Christ. Two, two ways to live and to love, right? Now, all of that might sound kind of beautiful, but it's still a bit abstract, right? What does that look like practically? Well, that brings us to the next two contracts, Contrast number six, sees saints' needs and closes heart versus sacrifices for saints in need. Verse 16, by this we know love. He laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in needs yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? By this we know love. Two ways to live and to love. By this we know love. And to demonstrate the right way, John starts with history's greatest illustration of love, right? While we were yet sinners, Christ laid down his life for us, for his people. So if you are here again this morning and you would not understand yourself to be a Christian and you're wondering about Christianity. This right here is the white hot center of Christianity. This is the main thing you need to understand about what we proclaim and the Bible teaches and what we are about as a people. It all rises or falls with this. Before you ask any other question, ask about this. Either Christ died on the cross as a payment for sin and rose from the dead to give new life, this life of love, or he didn't. That's the main thing you need to get your head around, non-Christian friend. And, and as Christians, we need to have our heads wrapped around continually. Or to go back to the blind man touching different parts of the elephant or different paths to reach to the top of the mountain. Christianity alone says it's not about finding our way to the top of the mountain, but God coming down from the mountain. Christianity alone says it's not about we're blind and we're just all giving our perspectives on different parts of the elephant. Rather, it's about Jesus coming and giving sight to the blind so that we can finally see who God is. And the most important thing we need to see is that God has come down from the mountain in the person of his son, and he has laid down his life for sinners. We had earned God's wrath by our sin. And yet Jesus paid for that wrath, laying down his life on the cross and defeating the power of sin, the power of wrath, the power of death by rising 
again. And not only that, calling out a people to say, if you would trust in me and lean on the power of what I have done, then follow me in the way of righteousness. What, what, what is the way of righteousness? Well, among other things, this verse tells us explicitly the way of righteousness. We lay down our life for our brothers. And then notice how practical John gets in all of this. He, he says, I'm not just talking about sentimental affections. I'm not just talking about warm fuzzies towards other Christians. Rather, look at verse 17 again. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? The love of self-sacrifice for fellow Christians, a, a, a brother or sister, shows itself in spotting needs and attending to those needs. This is very concrete, isn't it? You have the world's goods. That, that's what the, 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 word, the, the verse here says. You have the world's you, you have strength, you have money, you have health, you have time, you have power. You spot a fellow Christian who is lacking, who is hurting. And at that moment, you, you have a choice to look for ways to meet that need or let your heart, which in some sense is open at this moment because you recognize the need, it's open, but close itself. I'm, I'm going to close my heart to that person's need. That's not my problem. Somebody else will deal with that. I kind of just don't care. I care a little bit, but I don't care that much. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close my heart. I'm going to walk away. Deuteronomy 15 shows us what closing a heart looks like. This, this, this is the whole Bible. This isn't just the New Testament. This is the whole Bible. Deuteronomy 17, verse 7. If there is a poor man among your brothers in any of the towns of the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards your poor brother. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend him whatever he needs. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. Uh, the seventh year, the year for canceling debts is near so that you do not show ill will towards your needy brother and give him nothing. Don't do this wicked thought. Oh, we'll deal with this later. That's wicked, says the verse. It goes on. He may then appeal to the Lord against you, and you will be found guilty of sin. If this kind of closed-hearted love characterizes us, says verse 17. How can we know that God's love abides in us? The, the, the formula here is very simple. God lays down his life, and if that love is in us, we will do as he does in laying down our lives for our brothers and sisters. In little, bitty, practical, tangible need meeting sorts of ways. Laying down our lives as Christian characterizes all of our life, how you love your spouse, how you love your children, how you go to work, how you greet your neighbors. It characterizes everything. It also characterizes 
looking for, spotting, meeting the needs of other Christians. Let me combine this contrast with the next contrast. Number seven, love in word and talk versus love in deed and truth. Verse 18, little children, let us not talk in word or talk, but in deed and truth. It's easy to say and think we love other Christians. To say and think we care about the needy, but John knows how easily we are self-deceived to say something without actually living something. And so he offers this word of warning in verse 18. Now, to some extent, laying down our lives for others and meeting the needs of others does depend on the context context in which we live. A, A church inside of a housing scheme or next door to a refugee camp, as, as a friend of mine overseas is, is meeting needs there is going to look different than, than meeting the needs of a church in, a, in the suburbs, for instance. Different challenges face people in different places. And I think about how one family in this church decided to give thousands to, to helping others meet their counseling needs. A wonderful display of this kind of love. Nonetheless, there are still very real physical needs, even in a congregation like ours. And one way we work to meet that is through giving to the Benevolence Fund, as many of you have and do. It's a wonderful way of helping with those physical needs, those who have the world's goods versus those who do not have the world's goods. Or reflecting on this yesterday, it made me think of how can this church be helpful to other churches that have sometimes even more obvious needs than our own. I was thinking of Acts 11, where the brand new church in Antioch hears about the famine in Jerusalem, so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. It would be a great thing if if, if people in this church began to get to know other churches in our area and ask the question, "Hey, hey, what kind of needs do you have that we as a congregation can be helpful with. I think that would create amazing partnerships for gospel good. If, as each one has occasion and opportunity, looks to help other churches with their needs. Now, I recognize that these last two points are sensitive areas for Christians. We can easily and wrongly feel guilted. Still, the goal of today's text, we should not harden our hearts, close our hearts to the warning of this text. I have to ask myself, brothers and sisters, as I was reading through this and praying about it, how and when and where do I wrongly, sinfully close my heart off to the needs of others? Or or talk a good game, but don't live a good game. Even as you're examining your life and other areas of sin, this is one area that we all need to regularly examine as individuals and as a church. And of course, this isn't just about do more willpower. This is a property of love. Love one another. How should our love for one another look like? It looks like this generous need-meeting giving. Love is a major theme throughout this book. And again, throughout this book, I am trying to set it in contrast to love in our culture. Love is love. As the sign greeted me 
even yesterday, in a store I walked into. Why that emphasis on love in our culture? Where does it come from? Well, it comes from Christianity. It doesn't come from Islam. It doesn't come from Hinduism. It doesn't come from Buddhism. It doesn't come from Greek and Roman philosophy. The world today cares about love because of its historical Christian backgrounds. But that love that Christianity points to has a definite and certain content to it. Even as he loved us by laying down his life for us. So we ought to love one another. Love is love, says the sign in the store. What kind of love is that talking about? Is that talking about a a laying down my life for the sins of others so that we might be righteous in God? Love, is that what love is love is pointing to? Love not just in, in, in talk, but love in deed. Don't you see that the love is love of our culture today is the exact opposite? It's diametrically opposed to the love that we see in this text. It's not about sacrificing self, but indulging self. It's about love is talk. Is your pronoun my pronoun, the right pronoun? Not indeed. And so, friends, as as we're surrounded by talk of love, we train our eyes again and again to how does the Bible define love? And we'll be coming back to this again and again because this text is full of it. And believe it or not, contrary to so much of what we've been reading on social media for the last few years and even in the last few days especially, I think we can look out and see how God does change his people and teaches them to love. Now, These days, I think the popular thing to do is to critique, even as John prayed about the overturning of Roe v. Wade, is to critique pro-life Christians for caring about the unborn, but caring little for people once they are born. That's a common argument. And I think there's some room for such conversation. But I also think, well, to quote a tweet thread from Michael Ware, who I'd count is on the more progressive side of evangelical Christianity. There's more to the story to tell. He writes, I'm all for responsible, honest critiques of Christians, but I'm seeing folk on here literally claim no Christians personally care for the unwanted child. Fam, about half the refugee resettlement agencies are Christians. Christians essentially invented the idea of hospitals. Look into what percentage of hospital beds are faith-based in your state. Check out who volunteers in this country. David Platt's church literally cleared out the foster care roles in their county. Like, what are y'all even talking about? I've spent my career pushing Christians who don't apply their personal convictions, habits, and charity to political and systemic change to the extent I'd like. But why the need to tell a demonstrably false story about the church? Hungry kids aren't getting fed by your tweets. They're getting fed by a summer food program that's administered by churches. Or I'll take bread for the world, thank you very much. Or Catholic Charities or Senior Norma or World Relief and 80% of food banks. Now, I'm not here to commend any way of doing that per se or any one of those given programs. 
But I do feel like there's been a lot of revisionist history about how little Christians care for the needy. And I think heaven's records will show otherwise. We're not finally playing for view of the world. We are playing for the eyes of heaven. And finally, the point of this text is is to consider what will heaven's records show about this church? What will heaven's records show about my own life? Are you, am I, are we looking to supply what is lacking among worldly goods in other Christians? Number eight, have hearts that don't condemn us versus hearts that do. Uh, These verses are a little hard to interpret, but I I understand them to be carrying on the the same conversation. Verses 19 to 21, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before them. Uh, For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we can have confidence before God. By this, verse 19, by this, that is by, by practically loving and caring for other Christians in the world, we can know that we are Christians. It's one way to know. Such love is one means of assurance, as, as James communicates when he says faith without deeds is dead. Well, what if our hearts condemn us? Well, it, it may be that they should. If, if we're living and just despising and distant from and not looking to love other Christians, there's, there's a right condemning of the heart. There, there is a test here. Or, if you're living in repentance and faith and, and, and pursuing the Lord and loving Him and loving his people, well, we can trust, as, as verse 20 says, God knows everything. He, he knows what he's doing. He, he knows who are his. We're not finally the perfect judges of our own hearts. And as verse 21 says, if our hearts don't condemn us, if we know that we're trusting in Christ and walking in the truth, we can have confidence before God. We're not to walk around continually wondering, am I doing enough? We can have confidence that the Lord knows. The Lord loves his people. Finally, number nine. Two ways to live and to love. The right way. Believes, loves, obeys. Versus doesn't believe, love, obey. I told you early in the study of 1 John that John provides three tests for knowing if our faith is real. Or rather, we're seeing what real faith looks like. It looks like a belief test. Do, do we believe the right things? A, a love test. Are we loving the right way? And an obedience t- test. Are we trusting and obeying as we should? And, and these last two verses include all three tests. L- look again, verse 23. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. There's the belief test. And love one another just as he's commanded us. The love test. Whoever keeps his commandments, obedience test, abides in God and God in him. And by this we know, by these three tests, that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. We're commanded to believe, to love, to obey. And when we do, we know that we have his Spirit and that we are his. I love the last phrase in that verse. By this we know he abides in us. Now delete the comma which is not in the Greek. By this we know he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. In other words, by this you know that you have the Spirit who's creating these new creation realities in you. You see the fruit of belief and love and obedience 
little by little, more and more in your life? Do you call yourself a Christian, but you lack any belief or love or obedience? Then be aware of self-deception. Be warned, says this text. You should wonder if you have God's Spirit because God's Spirit is real and He is powerful and He actually changes us. No matter how stubborn and rebellious and, 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 and recalcitrant we are, the Holy Spirit actually changes us and we see the beginnings of belief and love and obedience. To conclude, the temptation, I think, of a text like this is for us to ask, am I doing enough? Enough believing, enough loving, enough obeying? And I think that's the wrong question. I think the better question is, do, do I see any belief, love, obedience? Do, do I see the beginnings of these things in my life? And if so... John means not just to provoke us, and he does mean to provoke us. He also means simultaneously to comfort us, to say, you, you must have the Spirit of God in you, with that belief, that love, that obedience. Now, keep walking in that way. There's two ways to live. You have the Spirit, and you see the beginnings of belief, Love for your brothers, shown practically, and obedience. Keep walking in that way, saints. You're on the right track. Let's pray. Father God, forgive our lack of belief, our lack of love, our lack of obedience. Help us to walk in the way of belief, love, and obedience. To abide in Christ, who is the world of love and who laid down his life for us. We pray this in his name. Amen.